are listening to the Change Management Review Podcast, where we bring you the best tactics, strategies, and actionable insights for change through our powerful interviews with change management practitioners and leaders. And now here's your host, Brian Gorman. Welcome to the Change Management Review Podcast. I'm Brian Gorman, Managing Editor of Change Management Review, and our guest today is Oscar Tromboli. Oscar is the author of How to Listen, Discover the Hidden Key to Better Communication, and also Deep Listening, Impact Beyond Words. Not only is Oscar an author, he's a coach, a marketing and technology industry veteran, a keynote speaker, and the host of Deep Listening, an Apple award-winning podcast. Much of his work focuses on senior executives and is based on his belief that by listening more deeply, they are able to transform their organizations. Oscar heads the coaching faculty for the Marketing Academy Australia, where he supervises 30 executive coaches and their clients throughout an immersive nine-month leadership development program. Welcome, Oscar. G'day, Brian. Really looking forward to listening to your questions today. I want to begin with three numbers because they appear throughout How to Listen. And I really learned a lot about myself, about my conversation with others, just through these three numbers. They're 125, 400, and 900. What are the significance of those three numbers when we talk about listening? The premise of the book is good listeners focus on what's said and great listeners notice what's not said. And these numbers underpin that. The numbers we outline, 125 words per minute, 400 words per minute, 900 words per minute. We speak on average in English workplaces at 125 to 150 words per minute. Now, if you're a horse race caller or a cattle yard auctioneer, you'll speak at 200 words per minute and everyone can still understand exactly what you say. That's because when you listen, you're listening at 400 words per minute. The reason this is important to know, good listeners get distracted, great listeners notice how distracted they are much quicker. You may be listening to this podcast at 1.5 speed, two times speed. You can listen much faster then I can speak. As a result, you jump ahead, you anticipate, you problem solve, you might drift away. You might think about lunch or breakfast or a chore for the weekend. So it's okay to be distracted. Brian, I'm often asked, Oscar, how can I stop the distractions? I said, do you want the good news or the bad news? The good news is you can't. The bad news is you can't, but you can notice them much quicker. Of all the numbers to remember from these three numbers, the most important is 900 words per minute. This is the average thinking speed of the speaker. That means that on average, they have 900 words per minute in their thinking, yet they can only say 125 in any one minute. That means what they say in one minute is 14% of what they're thinking. And that number continues to grow every minute they're going. So it's not 
a really easy task. Now, if you work in a workplace that's going through complex change, requires collaboration, requires creativity, might be operating in a really competitive or resource constrained environment, you may be thinking up to 1600 words per minute. So if you're thinking up to 1600 words per minute, that means that ratio gets worse, not better. And it means the first thing somebody says is 5% of what they're thinking. Therefore, the skilled leader bringing change to an organization needs to know that the most important thing to listen to is what's not said. And the 125-900 rule is the neuroscience behind that. I want to jump right into what you just said, which is listening to what's not said. In How to Listen, you actually talk about listening at five levels, each one taking us deeper. The first one is listening to yourself, then listening to the content, listening to the context, listening to the unsaid, and finally, listening to the meaning. Listening to the unsaid is the fourth of those five levels. How do those first four levels help us listen, or those for, I'm sorry, those first three levels help us listen to the unsaid? Well, each level is foundational. And if you break the model, it's actually in two parts. The first two levels, listening to yourself and listening to the content, you're listening to things. At level three, four, and five, context, unsaid, and meaning, you're listening for things. This is a very different listening orientation. You move your orientation from trying to comprehend what's said to helping the speaker or the group or the system make sense of what's not said. The model is foundational. We know from our research, we have two cohorts that we're tracking. We've got 23,000 that we're collecting data on at an aggregate numeric level. And we've got 1,410 we're tracking longitudinally over the last four years to understand, does this work actually make a meaningful difference to these people in the workplace? The data tells us this, that those 23,000 people mapped across the five levels of listening, 86% of people are at level one. 86% of people live in a world of distraction, electronic notification, task switching, a world where they're reactive rather than deliberate. So the first thing everybody needs to do, ironically, to start your listening, Focusing on the speaker is the wrong place to start. Most of you have so many browser tabs open in your mind, competing for memory, that you're not available to process a dialogue between one or many people. So Brian, the model is foundational, meaning you need to master the level below you before you start to access the level above you. The good news is in our data set, we know that half of 1% of people do operate and listen at level five. They listen for meaning. Listening is a skill. It's a practice. It's a strategy and it's a mindset. 
yet because most of us haven't been taught how to do it, we don't have the basic operators like we do in math. Math, we know it's universal, plus, minus, divide, subtract. Any country, any language. The periodic table of elements, any country, any language, it's identical. Language, the way we speak includes nouns, pronouns, verbs, adverbs. All of these constructs exist except for something we spend the majority of our do day doing, which is listening. And this is what the book is seeking to address. Give people a structure that's universal that they can apply. Now, the book is written for the workplace and there are added benefits for the at home. I'm curious, Brian, as you hear that, you've been nodding and smiling at specific points. So I'm curious what that's about. I've spent decades in the workplace, many decades in the workplace. And I've learned the importance of listening along the way. That said, I was just drawn into both of these publications, How to Listen, the book, and Deep Listening, the mini book, if you will, and self-instructed program that takes me through the five levels. I gained incredible insights into what I thought I knew how to do well. For the last several years, I've been an executive coach. And in coaching, listening is important. Like I, It's not even important. It's a vital part of our success. And again, listening to you now, reading the book, has given me some insights into listening more deeply. And I'll just give you one example. When you and I were exchanging emails earlier this week or over the weekend, you came back to me and you asked me which concept, technique, or principle changed your mind about listening. And I'm an introvert, so I need to reflect. I don't answer those questions very well right up front. And what I realized is that as a coach, we are taught to begin at the present and move forward with our client. And when you talk about listening to the context, you make an incredibly strong case for listening to the backstory. And not just listening to the backstory as, and, and I remember this very specifically, don't ask me where I want to begin. Because that's where I begin in the story. That's not where the story begins. And so I'm smiling and I really put this into context, Oscar. A while ago, I did a podcast here with a woman named Patricia Stege. And Patricia talked about trauma as the silent stakeholder inside of organizations. And she brought to us the data of the number of adults who are living with trauma. 
trauma is part of people's backstory. And yet, I'm not sure many, well, and you gave the percentages, what, 0.5% get to that listen for the meaning uh, level. Trauma is part of people's backstory. It affects how they show up at work. It affects how, how they hear what I'm saying. It affects how they respond to what I'm saying. And if I'm not listening to the backstory, I'm not communicating with them the message that I intend to communicate. When it comes to most change initiatives, Brian, that I've been exposed to, the literature I've read, the consulting work that I've done, one thing is consistent. The change leadership and the leaders in the organization are absolutely obsessed and fixated on the future. And the invitation I make to all of them, which not everyone accepts, but a majority do, is simply this. We need a funeral. We need to acknowledge the past before we can move forward. And most change initiatives make the case for change, the burning platform. But here's the good news and the bad news. As an employee, I want you to acknowledge that my efforts, my daily labor for weeks, months, years, possibly decades, got us to this point. And without a funeral that says, what do we want to acknowledge from the past and bring forward? And what do we want to acknowledge from the past and leave behind. We may want to bury it. We may want to burn it. It doesn't matter. The inability of change the leaders to understand the ritual of a funeral is for the living, not the dead in a workplace. You will have people who are mourning the past and won't trust the leaders in the future because they're not acknowledging the labor and your effort. If they understand this vital ingredient, this is a magical way to help everybody listen to the backstory, listen to their backstory, and notice the backstory of everybody who either is or isn't present because retrenchments may have taken place and, and people have left the organization. When leaders play the funeral invitation, they are stunned at what they learn about the failures of past change initiatives and the approaches that are inappropriate, not just in the past, but likely to be inappropriate in the future. This funeral exercise only takes half an hour, yet the impact of it is quite significant. I wonder if you've witnessed similar rituals, Brian, and how do you notice the impact of acknowledging the past? I have, and, and I have helped design and, and to facilitate them. As you said, people have spent sometimes a lifetime, a, a professional lifetime, building something up that now we're telling them needs to get torn down. The first thing to remember is 
we're here today because of what they built up. And let's honor and value that. And not just say, this is no good. This isn't working. Then we also have to acknowledge that there's pain, there's grieving that comes with the fact that we have to let go of so much of what we have invested in in order to move forward into whatever that new future is. I played this game back in uh, 2015. We're in um, a, a leadership team meeting, 12 people. It was 12.35. I knew this because the CEO was giving me the eye and pointing to their watch. And I just nodded to him to say, I've acknowledged your time signal, which in that moment he was on his phone and not paying attention. And uh, he started tapping the table, pointing to his watch, which again, I just non-verbally acknowledged and eventually he stopped. We're running an exercise to ask the group, if this organization was an animal, what animal would it be? And what was fascinating to me is the animals all had similar characteristics. They were animals of prey. They were cheetahs. They were leopards. They were eagles. They were ospreys. They were birds of prey. They all moved fast. They were all agile and they all killed things. Now, in the animal kingdom, uh, that's a natural way of being. So it was interesting. We, well, it was about five to one by now as we went through each of the 11 people present. And what was fascinating to me wasn't the animals that were being described, it was the animals that weren't being described. The last person, Lynn, she hadn't spoken. Card-carrying member of the introvert community, much like yourself, Brian. So to invite these people into reflection, they will tend to go later in the conversation. That's completely okay. And with extroverts too, we don't judge an extrovert because for them to think, they need to verbalize. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of people think of that in a pejorative way. And they go, oh, their language doesn't make sense. It's just a stream of consciousness. Yes, that's how they're processing that. And a lot is mentioned about neurodiversity and we need to embrace all those ways of thinking. So I turned towards Lynn and just gestured with a half open hand and an elbow that was at about 45 degrees, but I didn't make eye contact. And she took a breath and she said, I thought it was obvious. And she paused as she collected the right words in her mind to say, out of the corner of my eye, I spotted the CEO who was looking at his phone, looking at his watch. And if it was a comic strip, Brian, his laser beam eyes would have blown the top of my head off because we're not going fast enough. He wants to eat. He wants to have lunch. By now, food had been served, but not eaten. Lynn repeated herself and said, I thought it was obvious. I thought we were a snake. Now, Brian, as you and others are listening to this right now, in the West, when we conjure an image, 
and characteristics of a snake, they're generally not positive, are they? No. So people would describe a snake as slithering and um, sneaky and comes up unexpectedly and is always hiding. But the snake also in Christian and Judaic traditions is the Genesis story. It is the first story that everybody associates with the temptation and the snake tempting mankind. But what you don't know about Lynn is she's not from those traditions. And she continued to say, I thought we were a snake because we've forgotten to shed our skins every season. And we have systems and processes that are holding us back, holding our staff back, and more importantly, not helping our customers. For the next 25 minutes, nobody touched lunch and a vigorous debate ensued about a snake. And it's taking the time to listen to everybody in a group dialogue that is going to change perspectives. Now, the organization was doing quite well. They were growing at 30%, but they were moving into a global marketplace where their competition was growing at triple digits. They were growing at 120, 150%. So they realized they needed to make changes. As a result of Lynn's courage, as a result of Lynn being invited to speak, we realized that she's from a culture of China and snakes mean something completely different there. Ironically, the medieval ages in the West, snakes were associated with healing, pharmacies and medicine. And uh, it, it's always interesting to me how people layer meaning on that. So that's a version of the funeral because I was trying to understand how do people make meaning of the past? And when we ask questions that are analogous, that are metaphoric, we ask them about animals, we ask them about colors, we ask them about book titles or movies, we get an abstraction and we're not interested in the label, a cheetah, a leopard, what we're interested in is the adjectives and the meaning they ascribe to those things because then the organization can achieve a collective consciousness to notice our past, acknowledge our present, and decide how to change for the future. Wow. <laughs> what, what's, what bit of that is a wow for you? The power of listening, the transformational power of listening. Because Lynn could have said a snake and basically the collective could have said the equivalent of you're outvoted and the CEO could have said, go eat lunch. And that organization would be in a very different place today. Yeah, and if we jump forward a couple of years, they used the snake as little beanie toys that were distributed to all the staff. It became an anchor story. It became code names. Different snakes were code names for product developments and projects. And they integrated the metaphor of the snake all the way throughout. 
I think it took great courage for the CEO to persist with this random man in the room. Uh, I think it took great courage from Lynn to speak up, but equally listening is the willingness to have your mind changed. And I think for the other 11 leaders present in the room, well, what you don't know about Lynn, she was from finance as well. So it's a support function, often not asked for feedback or not included in decision-making other than run the numbers, you know. And certainly not listened to even when speaking so often mm. of the time. Yeah. Now, Lynn was outnumbered culturally. She was also outnumbered from a gender perspective. She was the only woman in the room. And what I did when I spoke to the CEO in the debrief, I, I, I simply asked, what did you notice about your team dynamic? And he said, I realized the role that the host has in influencing the way the group listens. And I said, well, tell me more about that. And he said, I'm obsessed with people listening to me. And what I realized, I have to become obsessed about my team listening to each other. If I tighten the connections between and across the team, I'm going to have a stronger leadership team. and it's going to be easier for me to lead. It's going to require less energy because one thing I noticed about you, Oscar, you're really lazy when you're hosting. If somebody asks you a question, your instant instinct is to ask the room if they have a similar question. And I never do that. And when I saw you do that, I realized that I'm not listening to the group. I'm only listening to the individual components or the individual ingredients, and I'm missing the exponential power of this group as a team. And I said, it's really seductive. Your ego just makes it feel so sexy for you to answer the question and create a position of authority through being the expert, doesn't it? And he goes, yeah, that's exactly how it feels like i said there is another part of your ego that's not a needy part of your ego it's a part of your ego that is comfortable with a group and humility now i'm not saying that part of your ego is bad but i'm just saying notice when the ego is showing up and understand which part of the ego we need to bring because the greatest ego strength of all is the ego strength to say the group is more potent, more powerful, more productive than I will ever be. Two years later, that CEO moved on and moved on in a way where he promoted one of the leaders internally because he built a team there and went on to do very different things. Yet most people don't realize that it's not your job in a group setting to listen to what everybody's saying. You have to create an atmosphere and a culture where everybody's comfortable asking questions of the other. Here's a really simple heuristic. Next time you're in a group meeting, Brian, or for you listening, notice how many times somebody asks a question and the person answering it 
seeks clarification or just instantly attempts to answer the question they think they've heard. Again, I'm a lazy facilitator and one of the things the CEO in that workshop noticed, he said, you often paused and said, tell me more. Occasionally you paused and asked, and what else? Now those two questions are really simple, but they have a deep design in very different directions. Tell me more is a north-south question on a compass setting. We're staying on the same course. We wanna go backwards or forwards on that question. And what else is an east-west question. We wanna go diverge, we wanna listen differently and we wanna help the other people listen differently. Because when you pose those two questions, typically what will happen is the person posing the question will go, their eye position will change, their head position on the top of their neck will change. More likely than not, they'll take in a breath. They'll go, hmm. Actually, the question I really want to ask is dot, 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 dot. And it's not significantly different and maybe up to 90 degrees different, but it's not 180 degrees different, but it has a very different intent. This is back to the 125-900 rule, Brian, that we talked about right at the beginning of our conversation. When somebody poses a question, the likelihood that that question is what they think and what they mean, it's 14%. Now, you might have a rock star who's thought about that question really deeply. You might get up to 28%. But still, there's a greater chance than not that the question they're posing isn't what they actually mean. The meaning that that CEO made of time evaporated completely once his mind was changed about the shedding of the skin because the processes they had in place were perfect for the business two years earlier, but to compete on a global scale, they had to become a completely different snake. I'm curious because you've nodded and smiled at many points here, Brian. What are you taking away from that? Those two questions are very much a part of my coaching. What I'm taking away is a deeper understanding both the tell me more north south and the and what else is west perspective on them, hmm. but also reinforcing for me the importance of those questions. When I was going through coach training, we were in upstate New York at a retreat center and our instructor had zoomed in a uh, coach from Vancouver. And she used these tiny little tokens, sort of like you might get out of a gumball machine years ago and had the client creating she was coaching him to create his story of where he was and what was holding him back and on and on and on but she did all of this with maybe two or three questions and tell me more and what else and what else and what else and each time my 
would stop and reflect and go deeper. Mm. And the result of that, you know, I know I talked with him two years later and he still had the video of that session and he was still reviewing it and learning more about himself and learning more about how he could become a better coach. So mm. that's some of the reasons for my smiles. Can, can I just add here two things? Number one, good listeners try and make sense of what the speaker's saying. That takes a lot of energy. Great listeners help the speaker make sense of what they're thinking and what they're meaning. The orientation is completely different. It's very light, but it's very transformational. The second point on this I'd like to make is linguistically, if you're asking questions with more than eight words, your question is likely to be biased. Now, be careful. A biased question is not correct or incorrect. It's not right or wrong. It's not good or bad. You just need to notice the intent. Biased questions are very important if you're making decisions, if you're allocating resources, if you need to rank the priority of something. We do biased questions are absolutely essential. And with questions of eight words or less, tell me more and what else, they're three words. Personalize them, make them your own. Like for me, I'm always saying, oh, that's got me fascinated. Tell me more. Oh, I'm so curious. Tell me more. Don't ask them immediately one after the other either. Otherwise, people think you're not actually not listening. But be conscious of your question length. And be conscious of, is the question a question for me to understand more about what they're saying? Or is the question designed to help them understand more about what they think and what they mean about that? The second orientation is listening at level three, four, and five. We're listening for things here at level three, four, and five. You can listen to things at level three. Yet that won't be helpful because it'd be quite draining because you as the listener may be trying to understand, oh, well, let me understand the root cause analysis of this issue and let me understand the data and the pattern and let's understand a heuristic. So for me, one of the things I work with leaders in our team meeting audits, whether that's with boards and chairs, whether that's with executive teams, leadership teams, customer care teams. One of the first things I ask people to notice is when a question is posed, are you answering the question you think they asked or are they maybe not so clear on the question they're asking? That simple act of clarifying questions. Now, you can't do it always, but if you're dealing with ambiguity, you're dealing with uh, a context that's shifting, you're dealing with change. Remembering that African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. To go together means we need to have a collective consciousness of where everybody's at. And often, if you answer the wrong question you interpreted, the person will be too polite 
to tell you, actually, you answered the wrong question. They'll just think it. And again, that person won't move forward in, in the change initiative. Finally, the question in an English speaking Western workplace context that will change everybody's mind the most is the shortest question of all. Done well, it's so liberating for the group or the individual. Done poorly, it can be perceived as intimidating. It's simply this, listen carefully. Silent and listen, share the identical letters. And when you've listened to yourself and shut down all those browser tabs and become present to the conversation, not just the participants, what is the outcome of this conversation? Silence will be like a magnet and it will pull people into a conversation that's much deeper, that's much more meaningful, that's much more sustainable and much more transformational as well. Oscar, I could listen and talk with you for hours. I think we need to wrap it up here. I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your listening wisdom. Thanks for the quality of your questions. You honor me by doing that, Brian. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Change Management Review Podcast. Be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.